Welcome to 18th Century Britain and Ireland, Episode 1, James II. The first episode of this podcast has two goals. One, to tell you who James II was and why that matters. Two, to introduce Britain and Ireland, the place we'll be spending the next century. The subject of the first series of episodes of this podcast will be the Glorious Revolution of 1689. The story of how James II, Britain and Ireland's last Catholic monarch, lost his throne. So we're introducing a dynasty first, a person second, and three kingdoms third. On the 2nd of February, 1685, Charles II, King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, died in his bed. Charles fathered numerous illegitimate children, but at the time of his death he had no children by his wife, Catherine. His successor was his brother, who became James II. To describe what James inherited, we need to jump back 82 years to 1603 when another monarch, Elizabeth I, died in similar circumstances. Elizabeth was the last Tudor Queen of England and Ireland, and she had no children. However, prior to her death, Elizabeth and her councillors worked to ensure that her cousin, then King of Scotland, James VI, would be crowned King of England and Ireland on Elizabeth's death. Elizabeth wanted to avoid a chaotic, disputed succession. She was successful. Almost simultaneously in 1603, Elizabeth I died, and an array of lords and former members of the Privy Council proclaimed James VI King. Scotland, England and Ireland entered a dynastic union. They were distinct states with their own parliaments, religious institutions, cultures and economies, but they shared one monarch, James VI. However, one quirk of the way that this succession played out is that James VI ended up with two numerals. James VI was predictably the sixth James to be King of Scotland, but he was the first James to be King of England and Ireland. So, bizarrely, James VI is referred to by historians as James I in the context of England and Ireland. On this podcast, I'll stick with the English and Irish numerals for monarchs, since it's accepted custom, and sometimes it's easier not to mess with that. James I had three children. His eldest son predeceased him, his daughter Elizabeth married a German prince, and his youngest son, Charles, inherited all three kingdoms when James died. James I is widely regarded by historians as a popular and effective monarch, that's good because it marks an effective contrast to the disastrous reign of his son, Charles I, and the violent chaos which affected everyone in the Three Kingdoms in the middle of the 17th century. Charles I's execution, the English Revolution, the wars of the Three Kingdoms, and the short-lived Republican Commonwealth fall well outside the remit of this podcast, and the events are too complicated to be neatly summarised. For our purposes, we need to know that Charles I was crowned in 1626. Over the next 20 years, the monarchy faced rebellion in all three kingdoms for different reasons. And ultimately in 1649, Charles I became the last monarch of the British Isles to die a violent death when he was tried and beheaded by the English Parliament. As I mentioned, the next 10 years defy summarisation, but crudely put, the English Parliament tried various Republican experiments in an effort to build a stable state without a king. They failed. So, in 1660, the Stuarts were invited back. The son of the beheaded Charles I, Charles II, became king. Charles II had, as I mentioned, many children, none of them legitimate. So, to return to where we began, his brother James II became king when he died on the 2nd of February, 1685. What I want to underscore here is that James II did not become king of Britain or the United Kingdom in a political sense. Instead, James II was a monarch of a hodgepodge of different territories acquired at different times by different means. This was not unusual in Europe. The same could be said of Spain and Austria. Historians call these places composite states. Knitting together the patchwork quilt of kingdoms and territories on the Isles will be a long-term project for successive governments, and by the time this podcast series ends, it will be only partially complete. Okay, that was a lot of background. If you're unnerved, this stranger on the internet makes two promises that you've no reason to believe. 
First, I wouldn't tell you something unless it was relevant to the story we're going to tell. Second, the pace going forward will be slower than this and less packed with names, dates and events. To move on to the second leg of our historical triathlon, I want to introduce James II, that is James, Duke of York, before his coronation. James was the second surviving son of Charles I and his wife, Queen Henrietta Maria. Born in 1630, James was the younger brother of Charles, crowned Charles II after the Restoration, a position he would occupy for the first 52 years of his life. The two boys were close in age, having been born just three years apart, but as young men, and then as adults, they developed contrasting characters. While Charles was known for his quick wit and good humour, James was distinguished by a stubborn humourlessness. Charles was wily, with an instinctive grasp for the nuances of a given situation, and James was strong-willed but inflexible. Charles was also a brazen adulterer throughout his life. As I mentioned, he had no legitimate children, but that did not stop him from producing a string of children with mistresses throughout his life. James committed adultery too, but he was, at least, discreet. When the Civil War in England started to go very badly for Charles I in the late 1640s, James escaped to exile in France like most of his family, including his brother Charles. In the decade between the execution of his father and the restoration of his brother, James joined the French army and fought against the Spanish. Then, when his family were forced to leave due to an Anglo-French alliance in 1657, he joined the Spanish army and fought against the French. James had been raised Protestant and baptised in the Church of England, but it was probably during this period of exile he developed an acute sympathy for Catholicism. His mother was Catholic, and his younger sister, born during the Civil War, was actually raised Catholic. On the continent, he appears to have taken a special interest in the religion, possibly due to new acquaintances made while bouncing around Europe. When his brother was proclaimed Charles II, King of Great Britain and Ireland in Edinburgh and Dublin on the 14th of May, the Duke of York came back to Britain to enjoy a return to power with his family. Within the first months of his restoration, James met and married Anne Hyde, daughter of one of his brother's most influential ministers. By most accounts, Anne was the more intellectually vigorous of the pair, and it's probable that she converted to Catholicism earlier than James and had a hand in guiding him to the church, which he converted to secretly in 1668 and openly in 1673. Later in the episode we're going to talk more about the religions of Britain and Ireland, and we'll talk more next week specifically about how and why James's conversion to Catholicism caused such a colossal crisis for the monarchy when we get into the exclusion crisis. For now, just know that when James's Catholicism became public knowledge, it was an immediate bomb dropped into the political arena because it raised the prospect of a Catholic king, and perhaps even a Catholic dynasty ruling Britain and Ireland. Through the Restoration, James enjoyed periods of political prominence and good fortune, along with periods of disappointment and unpopularity. Through the 1660s, James had a prominent role in building nascent national trading companies. He was chairman of the Royal African Company and a shareholder in the East India Company. Britain's great trading rival in this period was the United Provinces, the ancestor of the modern Netherlands. The United Provinces will probably get their own introductory episode later in this series as they're about to produce the next king. The basics are that they had long raced with Britain to dominate trade in Africa, Asia and America. In the first half of the 17th century, Britain fell behind. James was a leading voice for war with the United Provinces to control intercontinental trade, and he got his way when war broke out in the 1660s. However, before the two powers were even at war, he sanctioned the seizure of West African trading posts from the Dutch in his role as chairman of the Royal African Company. James has the dubious honour of being the man who broke the Dutch monopoly on the slave trade to America. James was critical in naval matters during his brother's reign. He had, funnily enough, held the title of Lord High Admiral since he was a child, but as an adult it became a practical, rather than purely honorary, title. In the 1670s, however, anti-Catholic sentiment intensified in England just as James revealed his own conversion to Catholicism. In 1673, the same year he revealed his conversion, Parliament passed the first Test Act, which banned Catholics from public offices. 
James gave up his command of the navy. Things got worse for James from there. In the late 1670s, a wave of anti-Catholic paranoia in England threatened to force Charles to remove his brother from the line of succession. We're going to get into that next week because discussing the anti-Catholic paranoia of the exclusion crisis neatly sets us up for the waves of anti-Catholic paranoia to come. Things got so bad that James spent some time in Scotland, but when the crisis finally passed he returned to England. For the next three years of his brother's reign, he effectively ran the government. One courtier reported that James directed all our councils with so absolute an authority the king seemed to have left the whole government in his hands. So when James ascended to the throne, he had military, naval and administrative experience acquired in that order. He didn't have the political savvy of his brother, nor his flexibility, but that aside, James had the makings of an acceptable king. For his subjects, the greatest stumbling block was his Catholicism, but at the time of his ascension, it wasn't an insurmountable issue. There is, of course, more to say about James II, but to end today, I want to sketch out what James actually inherited from his brother. The territories James II can be divided in three. The kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland all had some measure of autonomy from one another, divergent national histories, religions, cultures and political systems. Wales was, by the time James II came to power, pretty well absorbed into England. I want to first talk about what these units had in common, and then deal with what divided them. Britain and Ireland under the Stuarts was rigidly hierarchical. In the very broadest terms, the Stuart kingdoms were a society of orders. God sat at the top of the social pyramid, beneath him was the king, who combined the role of secular ruler with governor of the established church. Traditional accounts divide early modern society in three, in descending order of importance, the clergy, the nobility, and everyone else. Unfortunately, this has the nasty consequence of implying that the poorest church minister was better off, or at least superior to, the grandest duke. Likewise, you might reasonably assume that prefixing your name with Sir was a ticket to a station above the richest untitled landlord. Neither are true. As this podcast goes on, we'll have plenty of time to complicate this simplistic view. It would be a bad idea to discuss it in depth now, since this episode is already packed with information, but I do want to outline one way of thinking about society in Britain and Ireland. Britain and Ireland were rural societies. The vast majority of people worked in farming or a related occupation, and even the 10% who lived in urban communities existed to service agriculture. Towns were primarily a market for agricultural goods. If you think about society in this way, it's not surprising that beneath the king, the next highest rung on the social ladder was a small number of families who owned truly vast farming estates. The most exclusive members of this club were the peers, who sat in the House of Lords and wielded tremendous influence by combining wealth from land ownership with traditional privilege. This elite also included occupants of the richest bishoprics in the realm, men who sat in the House of Lords and whose estates allowed them to command vast wealth. A small number of gentry families, who had the wealth but not the noble title necessary for admission to the peerage, occupied the same spot on the ladder. In total, a rural, ruling elite of about 5,000 families owned two-thirds of England's arable land. Large landowners wielded power through their estates, but the work on those estates was done by the middle rungs of the social ladder. Tenant farmers, professionals, craftsmen, retailers, those producing and distributing goods were all necessary to the survival of these vast estates. The proportion of small landowners varied regionally. Finally, about a quarter of the population were labourers, people who worked for a wage. This group is predictably impossible to classify. Domestic servants, farm labourers, apprentices and shop assistants were some of the most common occupations. The final thing I want to do today, then, is to very briefly describe some of the ways the realms of the Stuarts were different from one another. England was easily the largest, richest, most populous and politically the most significant of the three kingdoms. Estimating population in the early modern period is notoriously difficult but there were probably 5 million people living in England at the start of the 18th century. Given that 10 times that number live in England today, it's not very impressive until you put it in context. 
Ireland had about 2.5 million people, Scotland had barely more than a million, and Wales had under 500,000. By population alone, England was the dominant component of the Stuart state. London was not only the largest city on either island, it was one of the largest cities in Europe. More than 10% of English people lived in or around London. England in general, and London in particular, was the administrative, economic, and political centre of power. Though the Stuarts were technically monarchs of three kingdoms, in practice they rarely left England. When James I departed Scotland in 1603 to be crowned King of England and Ireland, he promised to return every three years. In fact, James only visited Scotland once, in 1617. Charles I and Charles II moved around more, but given the fact they spent most of the middle of the 17th century on the run or fighting against parliamentary armies, it couldn't be helped. Likewise, while all three kingdoms technically had their own parliaments, in practice the English parliament was the most powerful. England's parliament represented the largest number of voting men of property, both because England was the most populous kingdom, and since Wales sent their MPs to England. The English parliament also had a partial check on the Irish parliament, much to the chagrin of Irish elites. We'll come back to this in the episodes to come. The other thing to note about England was that its economy was, by comparison to the rest of James II's possessions, a little less agrarian. I don't want to overstate this point. The vast majority of people still worked on farms or associated jobs. However, industry and international trade were two areas of growth. Clothes and other textiles were the most important industry, and wool and cloth production was chief among these. Since wool and cloth was produced in homes rather than factories, primarily by women, it occurred all over Britain, but southwest England emerged as the centre of growth. New consumer goods also bolstered international trade, which doubled between 1640 and 1700. Protectionist policies in North America helped England's trade to prosper. Ireland was the second most populous component of James II's domains. By the beginning of the 18th century, though, it was already as much a colony as a kingdom. The biggest split between Ireland and Britain was religious. The Church of England was created in the 16th century after Henry VIII's famous split with Rome. It was the established church in England, and as such anyone who worshipped outside it, whether they were Catholic, another type of Protestant, or another religion entirely, were subject to severe penalties. The Test Acts of the late 17th century made non-Anglicans ineligible for state jobs and ineligible to stand in Parliament. The Church of England had its own system of courts, which ran in parallel to the states. It collected wealth through tithes, which had to be paid whether you were Anglican or not. The King was the head of the Church of England, as well as its sister churches, the Church of Ireland and the Church of Scotland. The Church of Ireland was Ireland's equivalent church. However, where in England non-Anglicans made up 10% of the population, in Ireland the figure was closer to 90%. Members of the Church of Ireland enjoyed wealth and representation widely disproportionate to their numerical size. Most Irish people were, of course, Catholic. In addition to religious division, Ireland was also divided by culture and, to a lesser extent, ethnicity. Historians have traditionally split the inhabitants of Ireland into three groups. The majority of the population were Gaelic-Irish, the island's ancient inhabitants, resident functionally forever. The Gaelic-Irish spoke their own language, Irish, and had their own law code, distinct from the English common law. It would be wrong to say the Gaelic-Irish had a distinct culture, because in fact they had a multitude. Prior to the English invasion, Ireland was not a unified state, but rather a patchwork quilt of petty kingdoms. The second group, the Old English, were the descendants of the first wave of 12th century colonists. Historically, they had governed Ireland in partnership with the English monarch, dominated the Irish parliament, and controlled most political offices. By the end of the 17th century, however, both groups were in precipitous decline. The Tudor dynasty pursued a much more active role in Irish affairs at the cost of both groups. In 1541, Henry VIII had himself created King of Ireland. Thereafter, successive regimes pursued a combined policy of assimilation and military conquest to control the whole island. 
The Tudors relied less on the support of the Old English and more on the Lord Deputy, the King's representative in Ireland, who was usually English. The Gaelic Lords, meanwhile, suffered a decisive defeat in the Nine Years' War, 1594-1603, which buried their fortunes forever. The so-called New English were the main beneficiaries of the decline of the other two groups. The extension of government control over the whole island created a demand for new administrators, settlers, merchants, soldiers and landlords. Between 1603 and 1641, 70,000 English and 30,000 Scots migrated to Ireland. A system of formal government plantations displaced the Gaelic-Irish in particular and transferred their confiscated land to the new settlers. By 1641, the new English controlled 40% of the island's profitable land, most of it confiscated from the Gaelic-Irish. It would be wrong to assume that all Gaelic-Irish were Catholics and English were uniformly Protestant. However, it is true that the Gaelic-Irish and Old English were predominantly Catholic. While the Reformation had swept England, it had never had the same success in Ireland. One advantage of the new English settlers from the state's perspective was that they, mostly, belonged to the established church. The 17th century had devastated Catholic fortunes in Ireland. In 1641 they controlled 59% of the land. In just 20 years it fell to 22%. It's generally true of 18th century Ireland that Protestants owned the land and Catholics worked the land. The position of Catholics and Protestant dissenters as second-class subjects will be formalised and codified in the 1690s with the introduction of penal laws. Scotland was the least populous of the three kingdoms. Scotland had its own religious tensions with the English authorities. In Ireland, the Reformation had failed to cement lasting change, whereas in Scotland it had simply changed differently. The Church of Scotland was Presbyterian. It had a litany of differences in form, structure and doctrine with the Church of England, and the chaos of the mid-17th century was ignited partially by attempts to align the Scots Church with the English by force. The attempts backfired spectacularly. Like Ireland, Scotland was internally as well as externally split. In the northern highlands, Gaelic was the language of choice and ancient clan structures still bound communities together. The southern lowlanders spoke Scots and had to deal directly with the influence of England on their doorstep. Consequently, farming developed in the border regions as much to supply England as Scotland. Every one of these summaries is crude and oversimplified. But that's okay because we've got a long road ahead of gradually developing our understanding of these times and places together. This will not be the last you hear of any of these places. In the spirit of looking forward, the next episode in two weeks' time will discuss James II's position when he inherited the throne in 1685. He ascended a popular monarch, impaired slightly by his Catholicism. Four years later, James will flee England for France, ending the reign of the last Catholic monarch of Britain and Ireland. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.